0: Uh, doing some different kind of research, uh, spending different kind of time online, and, uh, uh, you know, for different reasons. But what I found is that um, there's this story, and the story is a man by the name of Marvin Creamer. Most of us don't know Marvin Creamer. He did not die of COVID and he did not uh, die in any kind of fire damage or anything else going on in the world. Marvin Creamer died this week at the age of 104. And the reason why I take time to tell you this is because I think his life is exactly the kind of picture that I want to illustrate what we want to talk about today. Marvin Creamer. Was a professor of geology, but more importantly, probably, is that he's a sailing enthusiast. And his expertise in sailing, combined with his understanding of how the world works in a physical sense, made him the first recorded person to sail around the world without any navigational instruments. Think about this he sailed like the ancients did no gps no compass all he used was the sun the moon and the stars and he'd been sailing since the 30s now he died this week at 104 so look at the kind of the chronology of his life in the 30s he became this avid sailor but it wasn't until the 1970s that he determined that sailing around the world without any instruments would actually be possible. But how he discovered it is actually really significant. While he was sailing on another trip, two things occurred. This, again, is in the 1970s. One, his compass light went out, making the compass actually useless. And then, while sailing, he was brushing alongside of a hurricane that knocked out all of his self-steering gear. In other words, he was forced to sail without any modern technology. So here's what he does. He realizes that actually he's a pretty good sailor without the instruments and at 66 years old. This is a guy who could be like in retirement mode. He could be coasting. He could be starting to put like cruise control on life and figuring out he had done enough, but he decides At 66 years old, and this is 1982, he set sail in a 36-foot cutter sailboat. And he was, even though he was respected, he was widely considered either stupid or crazy. And he embarked on a 30,000-mile trip that would take 513 days. And he completed it in 1984, and it had world attention. But here's what he said at the end, you know, in kind of interviews, people were giving him lots of credit. And he says, you know, when I finally figured out that I could do it, it was far easier for me to go than to stay home and not try it. People talk to me about courage. I don't know anything about courage. All I knew was I just had to go out in there and I try it. See, what Marvin Creamer did was he weaned himself, keyword, he weaned himself off of instruments. In other words, he learned to read the elements around him, which takes years of discernment, but it also takes a sensitivity of our own hearts and our own minds. Scripture talks all the time about having spiritual eyes, not just physical ability to see or corrective lenses in which we can now see better. It talks about layers of seeing the way God sees. See, to him, it wasn't all guesswork as much as it was wisdom, experience, and knowing what to look for and to listen to you might want to Google and learn more. It's a fascinating story. They did an article about his life. But where I want to go is back on the journey that we find in the Psalms of Ascent, because from Psalm 120 to 134, they're called the pilgrims, ascent of pilgrim psalms because they're this ascent where people of God would take a journey towards Jerusalem for this annual pilgrimage because they wanted to return to the presence of God. And the reason I love the metaphor of journey for us as Christ followers is the metaphor of journey is really discipleship. We do not get mass-produced Instant discipleship, but if we take obedience and the long road or the journey towards Christ and returning to Him, what we do is we get Christ formed in us. And so, Psalm 131, which is what we're going to look at today, you might want to turn your Bibles open to that. I want to look at another passage in in Second Samuel as well. But in Psalm 131, which will happen to be in the chat section if you want to read it, it's really it's a maintenance psalm and what I mean by that is if we're all I don't know what's going to happen how do we maintain oh, I know. I know. <laughs> awesome okay there we go so the question is Is when we, we have this maintenance psalm Um, if we're all on a journey of faith, how do we, quote, maintain spiritual vitality, even grow in faith while we all go through ordinary and everyday challenges of life? Those things feel pitted against each other. In other words, we need things to be going for us to actually get ahead. But what this is talking about is maintaining spiritual vitality. And what Marvin Creamer needed was let to let go of all the things that made sailing easier and efficient, and trust that he knew how to sail on his own. I think the same thing is true for us spiritually. We're called to live by faith, which requires us to letting go. It requires us to discern the signs. It requires us. To hear the prompts and respond in love more. And what I think God is doing as a heavenly Father is in some ways weaning us, and in a lot of cases, we resist it. Read with me Psalm 131. Some of these words might sound familiar to you, but they have been a source of help and hope for me this this week. Listen to this Psalm 131, it's only three verses. My heart, my heart is not proud, O Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me but i have stilled and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother like a weaned child is my soul within me o oh, israel put your hope in the lord both now and forevermore so the first part of that, just in verse one, we get pictures of our eyes and our hearts and our minds, which are all incredible gifts from God, but all three, while their gifts have a way of going bad, if we're not working on our eyes, our hearts, and our minds, they have a way of growing blind, hard, um, and, and cynical. And so we need a rhythm, we need a practice of renewal if we're to outgrow childish ways and develop an actual intimacy with God. Listen to what he says. He says, My heart is not proud. And I think too often we become impressed with by action and accomplishment, which doesn't sound bad, but according to scripture, the state of our heart is what is most important. So think about it. Every, every motive. Every desire, every attitude comes from the heart. So, how do we yield our hearts to keep them from going bad? My contention is that we need a growing awareness of God's presence and a willingness to yield to those prompts. We need to sometimes wean ourselves of maybe our devices, wean ourselves of too many other distractions. Now, he says, my eyes are not haughty. That is not a word that I think I've ever used. But think of it as arrogant or overconfident. One pastor said it this way, when you see clearly, you see your own sin and his mercy. But if you don't see your own sin, you see everyone else's. And it's hard to be too proud when you're being attentive to your own shortcomings. What we need, friends, is another set of eyes. And we know this in every part of our life. Like if there's something wrong with my computer and I can't figure it out, I'll call my son. That's what I do. If, I, if, if there's something wrong with my car, I need someone else to look at my car. If I'm selling my house, I need someone to inspect my house. If, if I have something wrong with me, I'll take an x-ray to get an expert opinion. Or, or if I need financial advisement, I'll get a, a, some kind of advisor to look at my budget. The question is, spiritually, in what ways do we invite and receive people to see into our own lives? My heart is not proud. My eyes are not arrogant. And then he says this idea about mind, our mindfulness. And he says, don't concern your, I don't concern myself with matters that are too great. Or another version would say grandiose plans. Now, this isn't about being intellectually weak. It's about understanding the tension that we all live with between a future hope and our current struggle. It's knowing and yet leaving room for knowing more about God's ways. We can say we know God, but the kind of knowing God that comes from obedience produces a a level of wisdom and understanding that we can't just access on our own. Now, the author of Psalm 131 is King David. And what King David has at his disposal is wealth, he has power, and he even has advisors. But instead, he seeks God, and he's humbled enough to recognize what he doesn't know. And it drives him to know God through his word, to seek him in prayer. And because he does that, King David worships with a kind of intimacy that I can only wish for. Now, Here is where his posture shifts from ambition to trust, like a quiet center. And he says, These are David's words I have composed and I have quieted my my soul, like a weaned child with its mother. See, this, friends, is a beautiful picture of contentment where he's not easily disturbed by ambition or accomplishment. And the most significant thing for King David is not his power on or his throne or his kingdom. It's his relationship with the Lord. And if we would push pause, I just want to look at a little bit more at the heart of David so that his words in this psalm might be even more stunning. So let's just look at the life of King David, and there's this instance in 2 Samuel, this will not be on your chat screen, but if you have an app or maybe a Bible near you, look at 2 Samuel chapter 16. There's a few verses that I want to read from, from the life of David, because when we talk about he's weaning himself, what we're talking about, I mean, think about a child moving from total dependence sucking to totally content and weaned. There's a huge gap that happens there. There's a lot of protest. There's a lot of unmet expectations. There's a lot of yelling. There's a lot of crying. Does this sound like your spiritual life? Till finding this utter contentment where you are resting in the arms of a parent entirely weaned. This is the picture of discipleship where we become self feeders. David was not always like this. And if we read this passage, we get a glimpse that David is coming of age spiritually. He's already king, he's already rich, he's already powerful, he's already got all that the eye could want, except that he's growing in a kind of obedience and intimacy with his heavenly father. Watch what happens in 2 Samuel chapter 16 this is where he loses his position and his title to a power-grabbing son. His son Absalom overthrows him with a successful coup, right? And with that, he loses power, he loses wealth, he loses respect, and his social standing. Now look at how David responds. This is 2 Samuel chapter 16, beginning in verse 5. As King David approached Bahurim, a man from the same clan of Saul's family came out from him. Saul had been the king before David. Saul was a Benjaminite. Saul was chosen by the people, not by God. But Saul had been in power and basically self-destructed. And now David had gone to power at the Lord's choosing, but his son overthrew him. His clan, or excuse me, was he was approached by a man uh, from Saul's family who came there. His name was Shimei. And he cursed as he came out, and he pelted David and all of his men, his officials, with stones. Though all the troops and the special guard were on David's right and left. And as he cursed, Shimei said, get out, you man of blood, you scoundrel. The Lord has repaid you for all the blood that you shed in the household of Saul, in whose place that you have reigned. The Lord has has handed the kingdom over to your son Absalom, uh, and you have come to ruin because you're a jerk-faced loser, or a man of blood. Kind of sounds like politics. It sounds like the mudslinging. I'm glad to oh be- God, I'm not just- so, far. so let's Yes. yes. there we go. And he says, he says, this is one of David's like mighty men. This is like David's bouncer. This is David's like, I mean, he's, he's, he's on David's side and he's a warrior. His name is uh, uh, Abishah. Then Abishah said to the king, David, why should this dead dog, uh, Shimmy, curse my Lord, the king? Let me go over there and cut his head off like you do. We all need people in our lives that are willing to just do battle on our behalf. We probably don't need friends who are willing to behead someone on our behalf. But it's nice to know that David's got an ounce of loyalty at his side. But then David says to Abishah, he says, and to all of the officials, my son, who is my own flesh, is trying to take my life. How much more than me, this Benjaminite? Leave him alone. Let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will see my distress and repay him with good for the cursing I am receiving today. So David and his men continued along the road while Shimei was going along the hillside, following them out of town, and he's cursing them, and he went throwing stones at him, showering them with dirt. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? But this is the picture. Shimei is a Benjaminite, the same as Saul, which when you're in the same tribe, one of the 12 tribes, and your tribe member is is the king, you had certain benefits associated with being a part of the same tribe as the former king. So when the former king is ousted, you lose a certain social standing. And he had a lot invested in the status quo, not in new things, particularly a new administration. But David is the disrupting agent, and now there's a face to direct all of his frustration, all of his fears. Now, Shimmy's throwing dirt, but it's about power. It's about money. It's about military. It's about religion. He's waiting to see David suffer. He's longing to see David fall on his face. And David simply responds by saying, it doesn't matter how much protection David has they can get access and be hurtful. David seems relaxed about the criticism. It might or might not be from God, but he's not concerned if it's true or not. I have quieted my soul and I, I, like a weaned child from his mother. See, I started out by talking about how this is just a maintenance psalm using the metaphor of weaning. All growth isn't just about gain. Growth is also about learning to let go, sometimes of really good, treasured, and safe things that we hold near and dear. And discipleship always confronts us. We're not called to be church attenders. We're called to be disciples of Christ. And the church is supposed to be a part of the equipping of that in, in the supporting of that. But it will always confront us with a dilemma of trust. Can we trust that the same God who has brought us to this point, blessed us with certain gifts and people, gave us what we are Holding on to and will be the same God that will see us through and maybe provide something even better, though different. Let me just tell you how I'm experiencing this week. I am currently weaning myself off of my own kids. It doesn't mean that I'm letting them go entirely, but each night I lock up the front door and turn off the porch light and go, oh, yeah, they're not coming home. And I've been doing this for a few years, weaning myself. It started with not always being the one to want to hold the hands. I remember the first time my son did the pullback of hands. We were going into first grade and I went, really? We're not holding hands in front of all the other kids? But then it moved to having sleepovers without me. And then it grew into them getting driver's licenses and going to places without me and then getting jobs that they could buy things apart from me. There was this subtle weaning of my presence, my, their dependence on me. And these kids have become young adults. And in some ways, it feels like a huge loss. And the last couple of weeks, I've been really nostalgic. But here's what I'm reminded of. Every time we gain something, which we like to gain something, we're all consumers. We live in a consumeristic culture. We like to add. But every time we gain something, we also lose something. And so this this time of weaning actually feels like the healthiest thing in the world. It's actually the problems we prayed for. It's the goal. Weaning is needed for them as well as it is for me. See, they've become high-functioning young adults who are emotionally, spiritually, academically ready to spread their wings. And even though I miss them terribly, this is beautiful. And I'm trying to apply the words of David where he can say, despite what's going on all around them, I have composed and I have quieted my soul like a weaned child in his mother's arms. So a lot of times we want to hold on to those things that are near and dear and we say, God bless me with this. I don't want to let go and accept that God is trying to grow us in trusting and and intimate ways with him. Every time we gain something, we also lose something. Discipleship requires a voluntary denial, a kind of dying to self. Another way to think about weaning is discouraging ourselves of childish ways. Think about the huge gap, like I mentioned earlier, between a sucking infant and a weaned child. There's a whole lot of tears and protests and unmet expectations when you're trying to wean a child. It reminded me of a story when we were living in Tuscaloosa. Our pastor's wife was at a a it was a baby shower. And so the room is filled with moms of different ages. It was a women it was a women's conference in a living room, right? And they're all walking around with the same parts, but a young boy walking around who his mom was trying to wean to get from nursing was old enough to A, walk and B, talk and was yelling out because his mom was denying him and he yells out in this baby shower, would someone here just feed me? At which point, you know, that kid needs to be cut off. I think, I think we are often going through a weaning process with God and we're holding on, like our life depends on it. And God is discipling us into something deeper. And He will feed us. What started out as once encouraged and normal dependency of feeding became something discouraged. Why? Because everyone should learn how to feed themselves. And then find their own health without it just being handed to. I'm afraid at times we create a spiritual or a Christian codependency where people are unable to articulate a living faith, where people are unable to feed themselves. We need a community of saints that are able to renew their hearts and their minds in the truth of God's word and and the sensitivity of God's leading. And what's clear to me is that God is emotionally healthier than we are. He's not a codependent heavenly father wanting to keep his child nursing. And many on a journey with Christ can talk about a transition where over a season, they went from an infant faith that grabs at God out of crisis or desperation to a mature faith that now responds to God. Out of love and affection, like a baby content in a mother's arms. Do you see the picture of how God might be weaning each of us in different ways? Now, let me just say this spiritual weaning is often marked by misunderstandings. It sounds like, I just don't feel God like I once did, or God, have you abandoned me? Or have I done something wrong? And the answer is, Uh uh, no way. God hasn't abandoned you and you haven't done anything wrong. You're being weaned. You are free to come to God or not come to God. You are, in a sense, on your own with a simple invitation to listen and receive and enjoy the Lord. But God is not going to force you, maybe like your parents once forced you. To go to church. God's not gonna force you to stand up and sing, maybe like your parents used to nudge you or pinch you if you smiled or were or, or, or chatting. God is inviting you on your own free will to seek Him with a kind of hunger. <laughs> we wanna have a prayer time and I'm gonna ask uh, our pastoral resident, Damaris, to guide us through, but let me just close with this story. When I was a kid, I have this vivid memory of being in a pool with my dad, and my dad had been a lifeguard, and my dad was a good swimmer, but he was teaching me how to swim. The problem is, is that every time I set out to swim to him, and again, I'm like a toddler age, probably three, four, five years old, and my dad kept inching away from me, and I hated it because the goalposts kept moving. I didn't like that it kept moving so far. So guess what I did? I whined a lot. I would constantly complain. Stop moving, stand still, because I wanted to be in his arms. I don't know if this is how you taught your kids to swim, but I kept back, he kept backing up and up so that I could find my stroke, paddle closer, learn to breathe and take breaths and, and, and tread water and not swallow it. But here's something that happened. (laughs) I didn't sink, and I didn't drown, and I actually learned to swim, and what's more, I actually grew up to be a lifeguard where I actually gave swim lessons to other people. See, we don't get to give away a faith until we're weaned from a kind of dependency uh, for others to simply feed us, and God is inviting us to this personal and intimate level of trust and seeking him on his own.